Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today in the show... What we've seen so far is a really concerning culture uh, in the department, fairly all refusing, we don't know, to reunite and restore family relationships between removed children and their parents. Class actions from First Nations families were launched against the Queensland government. We found out why. Also how First Nations communities are leading the way in renewables in Australia. And later today... Florence are particularly aggressive and they're particularly nasty. A lot of us have been bitten by a single ant in our lifetime. We always find ants out then when we're walking around. But fire ants will attack, not in their individuals, but their tens or hundreds or even thousands if you're close to a nest. First Queensland and now New South Wales. Fire ants are spreading. How dangerous are they? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on it across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, this week the COP28 summit started in Dubai, where politicians from across the world discussed the issue of climate action. But a group of protesters from grassroots group Climate Cop Out says COP28 is being greenwashed and took over the streets of Sydney in pushbacks to raise awareness of climate action. I asked activists from Climate Cop Out, Lisa Chalma, the aim of the organization. So Climate Cop Out is a gathering of different groups and people coming together um, to take community action against the government's failure to address the climate crisis. Uh, it's the first year that this is happening in Sydney and we are aiming to bring together as many groups and people to engage in disruptive action as well as community building activities like workshops and dinners and these sorts of things to be able to build a community presence in response to the ever-worsening climate crisis and the facade of nation-states talking, having meaningless conversations about our climate crisis and pretending like they're doing something about it. So you started some actions today in Sydney, as you mentioned. What are those actions to protest against the inaction of the government to do something about climate and against COP28 as well? So this morning there was a bike swarm in the city. Lots of people came out, all colourful and beautiful, and took to the streets and slowed the morning traffic right down. They were on the road for about an hour. The second, sorry, disruptive action um, that's happened in Sydney in response COP28, and interesting to have people on the streets as the Sydney roads have become quite a highly controversial space after all the anti-protest laws, and so as well as speaking out about the climate crisis and the failure of COP28, it's also asserting our right to be able to protest and to be able to have community demonstrate what they want for themselves, for our future together. So what are some of the issues Climate Cop Out has with COP28 that has led to these protests? So COP treats the climate crisis as an economic problem to be solved by market forces, when really it's a political problem. It fundamentally fails to challenge the political problem of the domination of the global north, and it's committed to unlimited economic growth and its extraction of wealth and resources. 
but fundamentally failing to address the actual issues that's happening or to talk about the way that these governments are continually perpetuating the climate crisis and it's essentially a greenwashing institution that is a facade of climate action when they're not doing anything about it. So one of the interesting things as well that you're going to have uh, later today is you're also protesting against the anti-protest laws that are happening across Australia, but particularly in New South Wales. Why is it important for this group to take action on it? It's really important that we're taking action against the anti-protest laws. What we've seen the New South Wales government implement around protest and our right to protest is utterly draconian and for people to be able to take to the streets which is what we've always done when community has had issues with what those in power are doing is we've taken to the streets and we've been able to speak out and you know have our voices actually heard and that's how so much meaningful change has been created and generated throughout history and what the government is doing with these protest laws is ridiculous and so it's really important that people are able to gather and that they're able to protest and when all life on earth is threatened by what these states and these bodies are doing it's just so important that we are able to have a voice and we're able to speak out for the climate and for ourselves and our children and our futures. So instead of attending the COP28 what would you like Australia or the Australian government to do to act on climate change? Listen to community and community members, listen to First Nations people, um, prioritize the voices of the people who are going to be impacted the most climate change and climate collapse. These colonial institutions are not listening to First Nations people when First Nations people hold everything that we need to be solving these problems and these problems have come about through the colonisation all around the world and it's imperative that we are centering First Nations voices and First Nations justice as we talk about climate change as well as people who are less privileged who have live in areas who are more likely to be impacted by climate collapse and to be supporting those people to have access to what they need and have community-led solutions to the climate crisis because these governments are not listening to us. They're not listening to anyone. Yeah, we've got a pretty full schedule for the next few days. We've got lots of events and workshops and things like that happening at Addison Road Community Centre. So if people can come down and gather, then that would be amazing. That was activists from Climate Cop out. Lisa Chalma. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. First Nations parents and children have launched landmark class actions against the Queensland government for their systemic failure to reunite families in an alleged breach of child protection laws. The cases will focus on what occurs after children have been removed and entered the system. Bottoms English lawyer special counsel Jerry Toka is leading the case and says every one of these stories is shocking and heartbreaking, but we know there's so many more out there. The Wire's Emma Watsky asked Ms. Tucker more on what these cases allege. There are actually two cases, technically. We've got one for the First Nations children who went through the Queensland Child Protection System and another which covers First Nations parents who had children removed by our child protection authorities. In both of the cases, we claim that the department breached federal racial discrimination laws and failed to follow their own child protection laws when dealing with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, although in different ways, and we allege 
has occurred since 1992 and that unlawful discrimination is ongoing. Under the child placement principles, what is typically required by governments and departments in terms of connecting First Nations children with their families? So those policy objectives and the legislation that has the child protection principle, they are directed at preserving the children's community and cultural connection. So they were put into law to ensure that First Nations children maintained that connection to culture, family, community. And if First Nations children are removed and there's not a willing or able kin, the principles still require the department seek a placement for the children within their own community or failing that with another First Nations family outside of their community. It's only when those alternatives have been exhausted that First Nations children should be placed outside the community or with non-Indigenous carers. We're finding the evidence so far from the hundreds of families we've spoken to and the statistics that the department is consistently failing to comply with those child placement principles. We allege that systemic failure to adhere to those principles breaches internationally recognised human rights and that has resulted in a fractured family units as well as severing connections to culture and community. What are some of the main reasons for the class action in terms of individual First Nations people and families and potentially the broader system? Well, I think that what we've seen so far is a really concerning culture uh, in the department, failing or refusing, we don't know, to reunite and restore family relationships between removed children and their parents. Even when parents have, like, you know, substantially or completely complied with the requirements of the department. So put another way, the complaints that we're getting from parents is that they can do everything that's asked of them to satisfy the Department of Child Safety's requirements, but those efforts bear no fruit. So the goalposts for reunification keep getting moved. And this is a huge issue. It's leaving many parents feeling completely lost and powerless. What further impacts could the failure to unite First Nations children with families have on their communities and culture? Massive. I think that one is quite difficult to answer because it's so wide-reaching. It's re-traumatising, I think is one of the best words I can use. It's re-traumatising for First Nations families because a lot of the families I've spoken to see this department conduct as modern-day repeat of Stolen Generation, Stolen Generation 2.0, or very similar to the protection era legislation of control in terms of the cultural impact Um, You know, you take a child away from their community. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that's not necessarily or inherently the safest option. You know, a lot of that culture learning is transferred through kin, through being on country and spending time with your family and community. And if you're not there, if you're far away, you don't have someone facilitating visits and time on community and country and family, then obviously you're not going to develop the cultural learning, which is so important. I understand that you have had direct engagement with a number of these First Nations people. What are some of perhaps the direct reports or direct experiences that you've heard of of such impacts? Well, I think our lead claimants both have a really compelling and deeply concerning stories about what's happened to them. I can speak a little bit about that. So for our children's case, the representative, her name is Madison Burns, and she's an Aboriginal woman, but she has no idea about her culture. She was removed uh, from her mother when she was very young and went to live with her maternal grandmother, then was just told, okay, you're going on a sleepover, and then just suddenly found herself in multiple different foster homes. She asked the department to help find her paternal family who are Aboriginal. I'm wanting to know, you know, who I am and what mine from them and really getting nowhere. 
we we have no evidence that the department even looked for those First Nations people, uh, First Nations family members of hers, and you know instead she was just passed around different carers until she exited the system at 18. And she has a lot of really awful stories about living on the streets, living off food vouchers, and the department alleging that she would just use those for drugs. That was Special Counsel at Bottoms English lawyers Jerry Tucker, ending the story by The Wires, Emma Watsky. A spokesperson from the Queensland government told The Wire, we are aware of this matter which is before the federal court and it would be inappropriate for us to comment at this stage. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs and community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM to our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio, and to the other side of the country, to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. First Nations communities are leading the way in renewable projects in Australia. This week, the First Nations Clean Energy Network launched the first project, Tracker, the first one of its kind in Australia. The tracker helps identify the 14 renewable projects across the country and is expected to double the projects by next year. I ask co-chair of the First Nations Clean Energy Network and Luritjaman Christopher Crocker to explain more about the tracker. The First Nations Clean Energy Network has been actively advocating for First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inclusion and empowerment when it comes to the energy transformations sweeping across Australia. So one of the key aspects of that is Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander groups you know, owning, leading, being at the decision-making table when it comes to energy development. So the Project Tracker is a way where we've been speaking to, monitoring, capturing you know, the status of partnerships or even 100% led Indigenous projects across the country. But yeah, so the Project Tracker is a free um, tool putting in place information about the projects currently being worked on and developed by Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander groups across the country. And yeah, we're very excited to say that yeah, so far we've been able to record 14 across the country. Now, is there any Project Tracker similar to this outside the First Nations communities that we're aware of? The renewable industry in Australia has different versions of project location trackers, but, you know, that's not really of benefit for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups because it doesn't highlight which ones we're actively working on or or I'm leading, and it doesn't actually provide other community groups a little bit of information about what's possible and the like. So this is definitely the first in the country, yes. I'm assuming these projects have unique agreements to operate, but in which ways are these projects supporting First Nations communities in a nutshell? Definitely, yes. So all of these projects that are listed have been you know, actively developed in partnership with the local Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So they are really different from you know, the, the normal approach of developing infrastructure in Australia, where sadly, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups are sometimes the last to hear about projects occurring on their country. And you know, a project proponent may typically you know, wait you know, several years until they're obligated to approach us for um, heritage clearance. Whereas these projects, they're all different and the partnerships arrangements are even, some, some of these projects are 100% led by Aboriginal groups. But, so they're vastly different. 
And why are these clean energy projects so meaningful for First Nations communities? Uh, it comes back to that, um, you know, um, self-determination. These community groups are self-determining what's right for them rather than having third parties, you know, determining what's best for their interests. These are, you know, projects being developed you know, by community groups, self-determining what's in the, their own best interest, how are they going to, you know, combine the multi, multifaceted, you know, local requirements, whether that's protecting country, heritage management, local employment economic opportunities, you know, it's a multi-lens way of looking at a project. But of course, as an Aboriginal person from the central desert, this is like second nature to us. We, we're always thinking about the future, our families, heritage, land. And then of course, you know, we, we know that we need to be active in terms of job creation and employment opportunities. And of course, if we can um, be involved in the economic benefits as well, and you know, that's a, a, a very unique um, outcome for us. What would you like the federal government to do to support more uh, projects like this and add them into the project tracker? Definitely, yeah. So, so we know um, even with the smaller, you know, clean energy project, you know, they require a lot of money. They require deep expertise in energy development and technology, and then overlaying all of our cultural and environmental expertise. So, I think we need Australian government and the state governments and even industry to realise that by working with Indigenous partners in a really strong partnership, co-owned development model, we'll actually get better outcomes. We'll get better outcomes for the country because we're able to work towards our climate mitigation goals, reduce our pollution from carbon dioxide, from burning coal and fossil fuels, be able to grow the next wave of industry, so in a massive amount of employment opportunity or regional Australia coming from this energy transition. But you can only do it by working in partnership, working closely together. You know, industry, government and First Nations communities coming together to lead these projects. How many clean energy projects will you be expecting to be added in the project tracker next year? So even though that we've entered 14 into the project tracker so far, many of those have been in development for, you know, two, three, four years. So over the next year, I'm really hopeful that we can double the number. So getting close to 28. That was co-chair of the First Nations Clean Energy Network and Luigi Man, Christopher Crocker. Have you checked out The Wire? It's your national current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view, current affairs with a difference. Don't miss The Wire. Daily on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. Fire ants are an invasive species in Australia and originally were found in Queensland. However, fire ants have crossed to New South Wales' northern rivers and they can devastate flora and kill some animals. The Wires contributor from Bay FM, Mia Armitage, asked Professor of Epidemiology at Southern Cross University, Nigel Andrew, why fire ants are so dangerous. Fire ants are very scary to have close by, I should say, first and foremost. As an entomologist, you know, these are invasive species and they can have profound impacts on our life if they become sort of settled in areas in which they're currently found. They're native in South America and they were first found 
in Australia in 2001. There was two incursions of the fire ants, both in Brisbane. One was in the bay there, and that was actually eradicated quite quickly. But the second one, which was more in the southeast, that wasn't controlled as well as it should be to eradicate the populations that came in. There wasn't a concerted effort to eradicate them and there wasn't enough money and resources put in and it wasn't coordinated. So the fire ants, even though quite a lot of them were killed off, there were still some that actually were able to persist. 20 years on, that individual sort of group of ants that came in have now increased their area to about 600,000 hectares. They are quite an amazing invasive species because individual nests can get up to about 400,000 individuals but they can also make super colonies if they're left to their own devices. An ant colony, an individual queen produces a lot of workers but a super colony can be made up of multiple queens and they can have millions and millions of workers in them. These aren't just your normal ant that you might find in Australia. Australia has thousands of species of ants that have evolved here but these ones in particular, the red imported fire ants, are particularly aggressive and they're particularly nasty. A lot of us have been bitten by a single ant in our lifetime. We always find ants out then when we're walking around. But fire ants will attack not in their individuals but their tens or hundreds or even thousands if you're close to a nest. Are you saying that if a fire ant decides to attack you, it's going to bring all its buddies, so you'll actually be attacked by a swarm of ants, not just by one? You won't be attacked by one. You'll be attacked by hundreds of them. And... That's why they're so ferocious. Jeez, you haven't brought us any good news, <laughs> Professor. <laughs> these, yeah. these ants really, really aren't sounding like friendly neighbours to have. However, you mentioned that the very first known colony of fire ants in Australia was up around Moreton Bay, I think you were saying, up in Queensland. Was it Moreton, um, in, Moreton in, Bay? In um, Brisbane, in the port of Brisbane. But you said that they managed to control that mm-hmm. one, whereas I have heard the Federal Agricultural Minister Murray Watts say that nobody's ever been able to eradicate fire ants. So I, I gather that's maybe that's not... Not quite true? Or well, we've had so. nine incursions of fire ants into Australia. All of them, bar the current one in southeast Queensland, has been eradicated. The eradication happens when they are identified early on and quickly. So once you identify them, the incursion's been identified. The federal authorities, the biosecurity, plus also in New South Wales and DPI and the Queensland equivalent DPI, they have actually got a really well-coordinated effort to actually identify if a fire ant is in an area. They put a biosecurity area around it. So that's why the issues that occurred when the fire ants were found over the New South Wales border, it was a really swift sort of action that the DPI had there with biosecurity because they came in, they put up an area around where the fire ants were found, a biosecurity zone. They started to eliminate the nests that they found, but they also did a sweep of the entire area, um, of the, the area in which they covered to make sure that other nests weren't found there. So they brought in sniffer dogs, they do aerial surveys, they take in drones as well. That sort of effort is really critical to get in early. That's when you can control it. I want to talk about some of those efforts. Sniffer dogs, for instance, you've said that the fire ants have a really nasty skin and that they can trigger very dangerous allergic reactions in humans, that they can also kill livestock. Are sniffer dogs somehow immune? They, they generally sniff them out. So because obviously they, they come across a nest. You know, they won't stay there. They'll, they'll stay there and then identify the walker with... I think it's a, an alkaloid that is in 
the sting. And so a lot of ants give off a particular scent or a pheromone. The fire ants are like that as well. So when they are actually found in an area and they're feeding, and also if they're stinging, that will give off a particular scent. And so the sniffer dogs, they actually have developed the ability to identify that particular scent. Obviously, if they find it, you don't want them to sit too close to the nest, but they probably get close to the nest and say, you know, there's one close by. The walk with them will go in and actually make sure that it is a fire ants nest there. That was Professor Nigel Andrew from Southern Cross University, ending the report by Bay FM's Mia Armitage. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3ZZZ, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Nianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.